grit is knowing you have this impossible task ahead of you, you know, this giant mountain to climb, not really knowing how you're going to get over this task or through this task, but just going at it because you've had through horrible tasks before and you always get through it no matter what. And just having that kind of confidence in yourself and your teams that regardless what's in front of you, you're going to get through it every single time. That's great. Hi, I'm Jubin, business development and go-to-market operating partner at Kleiner Perkins. And I'm really excited to bring you this episode of Go-To-Market Grit, a show that interviews amazingly successful sales and go-to-market leaders and explores how they operate, think, and deploy grit every day in order to build world-class teams. And now on to this episode. Cameron, welcome to the show. Thanks for inviting me. Of course. I like to start these things off by reading your background to you. And then you tell me where I can fill in the blanks, all right? You got a degree from UC Davis in electrical engineering. Go Aggies. First time I've had an alma mater on the show. You got your MBA from the University of Montana. You then went on to be a sales manager at Diablo Solar Services for about two and a half years. Then went into product marketing as a product marketing manager at BEA for two years. Then you went into Jive Software as a product marketing manager for about two years, then senior director of marketing for about four and a half years and about half decade after that, Jive actually ended up getting acquired, KP company, woohoo. Then you joined Atlassian. And so you joined Atlassian about eight years ago is my understanding. You started as the senior director of advocacy, which we'll touch on what that actually means. You spent about a year doing that and then you had kind of a stratospheric and diverse rise at Atlassian, which included six and a half years as the head of growth and online sales. You were the head of server and enterprise marketing for four years, head of corp dev for two and a half years, head of the server business for two years, and now in the last six months or so, the chief revenue officer. Is that right? Yeah. The LinkedIn math added up to a whole lot more than eight years, but I've been here for eight years at Atlassian. I've probably had five or six jobs. You know, Every 18 months, they kind of handed me something new to go do, and I never said no, <laughs> which uh, so far has paid off. We'll see how this roll ends up. Also, the other one is I actually graduated. After my undergrad, I went into sales roles, realized I wanted to do something beyond just sales and went and got my MBA. And through my MBA, actually turned me on to high-tech product marketing, which I thought was a great combination of you know, technical product knowledge plus sales skills merged together. Product marketing kind of lives across both those worlds. And that was kind of a big foundation of my career. I love it. It's a really cool story and it's going to inform an even cooler story of Atlassian. And so there's a couple topics that I want to dive right into because I think we're going to be pressed for time because I'm going to have a lot of questions for you. The first is building a $44 billion business with no sales team. And the second is the growth levers at Atlassian. So those are the two things that I want to focus on. Maybe before we dive in, do you want to tell the audience what specifically your role is? How many people are in your org now versus how many people were even at the company when you started and then what Atlassian actually does? As CRO, Chief Revenue Officer at Atlassian, I'm in charge of effectively all our customer-facing functions. So our marketing team rolls up to me with our CMO, Robert Chatwani, as the head. Our global field operations team, which has services, sales, our channel teams and a variety of other functions rolls up under our leader in that group, Jose Morales. 
And then our customer success and support teams led by Brian Mayo. So those are the three organizations that roll up to the CRO at Atlassian. Across everyone there, you know, it's probably just shy of 2,000 people total across those three different departments that roll up to me today. As far as what Atlassian does, you know, if you're in the tech community out there, you most certainly know Jira. It's definitely one of our more popular products. But Atlassian in general is a, we consider ourselves a teamwork, team productivity company. We have, I believe, 14 products right now, ranging from core software development and software development productivity tools, Jira software, Bitbucket, into broader IT operations tools, Jira Service Desk, OpsGenie. We also have tools for broader collaboration and work management like Trello, Confluence, and much more. We are definitely a multi-product company. And if it's something related to making teams work more efficiently, we usually are interested in building it or investing in it. How many people were at Atlassian when you joined eight years ago? Oh, I think I'm in the directory. I was employee like 638 or something like that. So the company was founded in 2002. I started in 2012, so 10-year run. But I think about 600 employees when I started. And interestingly, I think we hired 531 last quarter alone, (laughs) which is kind (laughs) of crazy, right? And we haven't slowed down. We plan to hire another thousand this year alone. And the company was founded in Australia. Yep. Two founders and our co-CEOs today, Mike Cannon-Brooks, Scott Farquhar, started the company in 2002 with the primary mission to not have to wear a suit to work. True story. That was their primary goal was to make as much money as they would working in a telco or a bank in Australia but not have to wear a suit to work. And that was the core reason for Atlassian's foundation. Obviously, they did a few right things since then. Yeah, look, I think they've earned the right to wear whatever the hell they want, including underwear or not to work at this point. So yeah, shoes optional. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Okay, so I got the privilege of doing a lot of research on this company in advance of this meeting. And every single thing that I learned about it blew my mind. Every single thing was completely atypical from anything that I've seen in any traditional enterprise or software business. And so I want to jump into it. Today, Atlassian has about a $44 billion market cap. And let me just throw some stats out here to like set the framework for how insane this company is. You spend more on R&D than sales and marketing, which is one of the few companies to actually do that. Atlassian spent between 12 and 20% of the revenue on a given year on customer acquisition. And in the last three years, that compares to about 50 to 100% spent by the median SaaS company. To put this in context, 19% compared to Workday's 37% compared to Salesforce's 50% of percentage of spend in sales and marketing, ServiceNow 50%, Marketo 60%, Box 80%. So I'm flying through this, but it is absolutely insane the efficiency with which you grow. We spend a lot of time at Kleiner thinking through kind of the consumerization of enterprise software. We start to think that this is happening more and more. And what we thought of was the advent of Slack and others. You guys are the OGs of doing this. Maybe you could just start by telling us what the hell is going on organizationally and how foundationally did you guys get to this point today? And I know that's a very open-ended question, so take with it what you will. Yeah, listen. You got to think to the roots of this company, founded in 2002, out basically in the middle of a global recession, right? Which is before the 08 and 09 global recession, it came out of the 2002 global recession. You had two engineers starting a company in Australia. It's a little bit tough for them to raise funds, raise money, hire salespeople, right? And it forced them as a business to basically come up with a key foundation. 
and for how they were going to grow their business. And one of the first things that they agreed to or that they built off of was our products need to be bought, not sold. And not because they didn't believe in salespeople. It was because they couldn't afford salespeople, nor could they raise the capital for it. So they said, you know what? Our products need to be bought, not sold. It was a big foundation. The second one is they were in Australia. And knowing that the percentage of global IT spend is not centrally focused in Australia, it's you know, around the world, North America, Europe, you name it, that they had to do everything online. And they, as the two founders, were you know, software developers. They were constantly frustrated that they were looking for new technology to get their jobs done and then constantly being thrown into... They could never find out what the price of stuff was. They could never try anything. And the reality is every time they knocked on an enterprise software company's door, they'd get qualified out very quickly, right? This isn't for you. You don't have the budget for this. So they're like, I just want to try the tech. If I like it, I'll buy it. And then that simply just wasn't an experience in early 2002. So they said, we need to make all of our products available online. We don't have salespeople. We need to make sure that the pricing is open and transparent to everyone. And we need to make sure that people can use the products. And if they really like them, they can buy them, which... Right now, if you think of modern SaaS company, that's like the basic DNA of, but 2002, that's like <laughs> people's heads exploding. <laughs> the only other top of that is it, it worked. It worked really, really well. And on top of that, they made two years into the company, they made the crazy decision that if they had venture money or if they had any sort of support, they would said, absolutely never go do this. But after two years, Jira, their first product starts getting some traction. They released their second product, Confluence, which is... The last thing you would do as a fledgling startup is just take resources off your primary product and start building a second product. But that was another thing. They realized, hey, we're solving a broad set of complex problems. You're not going to have one product to solve the complexities of software development, much less team collaboration more broadly. And now we have a massive multi-product portfolio that we land customers through very low-cost self-service experiences. You know, Most people just are Google searching Jira and they come to our products. And then we have multiple expansion vectors that we can bring more users to the products or cross-sell and so on. And you get this kind of rich flywheel motion <laughs> that customers are always landing and expanding every single day across Atlassian and with different land products and different expansion. So let me just get this straight, not to put words in your mouth, but it starts in Australia and the founders basically don't have the gravity to be able to raise venture money. So they think, okay, if we can't raise venture money, then we need to build a product that sells itself. If we need to build a product that sells itself, it has to be easy to try. It has to be cheap enough to be purchased without all these C-level approvals. It has to be extremely low friction. And if it doesn't need approval, and if it's extremely low friction, then it must be simple, stupid, and ubiquitous. Then, out of necessity, they bring a product to market that happens to be incredible, which was Jira at the time. And two years in, they realize, this is working. We don't actually need any venture money and we don't need any salespeople. Is that a fair origination? Yeah, I'd love for them to say like it was that clear. I mean, yeah. they always love the bootstrapped approach. They always are were exceedingly frugal and still are to this date as far as how we run the business. And in general, they always were happy with let's consistent growth. We're building a company that needs to be around for a hundred years. We don't need to do anything artificial to accelerate growth or, you know, as long as we have steady growth where we're landing net new customers and expanding them over time, you know, we're going to build a very healthy business. I can't speak to what was in their head from a fundraising perspective and so on. I'm sure they had plenty of opportunities, but yeah. the reality is that they never needed it because they had those key principles that they agreed to. 
yeah. the other big one I want to put on there is pricing, is the price transparency. And it's still today across all of our sites for all of our products, you can see all of our pricing. And all of our customers get exactly the same pricing, by the way. You know, so there's no separate negotiations or discounts are happening. He said, listen, that's the price on the site. That's, you know, compared to any competitive offering, orders of magnitude less expensive, but give the customer all the information they need to make the choice themselves. The only other piece I'd add to that is, at least in the early days, we were starting towards focusing on development community, still a core market, but, you know, we've expanded to there, but they realized documentation was critical for developers. You know, the development community didn't want to, didn't need to talk to people. If you provide the right documentation, they're going to figure out the products for themselves. So we invested heavily on documentation and self-service experience for our products. Oh man, I'm biting my tongue because I have so much to unpack there. Before I do, your background is very interesting as the CRO now, and this is kind of an emerging role and title that we have the privilege of having on this show quite frequently, but it's just coming around. And typically the CRO has a very diverse set of experiences. And I think Atlassian, given the way that the business has grown up, requires that CRO to also have that diverse set of experiences. And I'll try and be specific about the question. You've been in like four or five different divisions within Atlassian. How do you think that that's informed the way that you view the business and ultimately drive revenue today? Every role I've stepped in here, every single role at Atlassian, I've learned a ton. I've run R&D teams at Atlassian, product management, program management, and engineering and quality, all that. I've run our growth teams, diving into experimentation and statistical significance. I've run our analytics teams as part of that. I was in corp dev. I didn't actually buy any companies in corp dev, so I call that my sabbatical. <laughs> you know, I've been on the marketing side of things, running campaigns. So, like, the reality is, my experience at Atlassian has allowed me to understand how the machine works. And I say is the machine is it's exactly what we built. We were a five thousand person company, one point six billion last fiscal year. Like we're this sizable organization, and it's a machine, and that machine is a variety of components to make it work. And what's allowed me is by having all these different roles, seeing the different pieces of that machine, and understanding them deep enough of which ones we can pull harder to get better impact out of, which ones we should be investing more in, which ones we should be investing less in, and honestly protecting the most important ones. And I think that's a big one for me is ensuring that the core pieces of which keeps this flywheel motion going, that we're protecting those at all costs. And you started as the senior director of advocacy. If you look up Atlassian sales on LinkedIn, you're not going to really find a whole lot. If you look up customer advocacy Atlassian on LinkedIn, you're going to find a whole lot. And so what is the difference between customer advocacy and sales? So yeah, first off of that title, the advocacy title, everyone thought I was doing like the philanthropy arm of Atlassian. <laughs> That's not it. That's uh, We have the Atlassian <laughs> Foundation, incredible program. We donate 1% of all of our profits to through the foundation. But no, the advocates organization was as close as you're going to get Atlassian to the sales arm of Atlassian. When I started, we called them advocates and customer advocates was that's what we wanted them to be. We wanted to advocate for the customer inside of Atlassian. Now, the reality is it's not that we don't have salespeople. Like the reality is if you have a sales related question, how does our product stand up against whatever you're trying to do in your organization? You're trying to solve a problem. If you have questions, we have people ready to answer them. (laughs) The only difference is for the majority of our customer advocates is that we treat that engagement, every interaction is answer that question as quickly as possible, whether it's pricing related, product related, you name it, make sure that customer's happy, respond quickly, 
and then let them go on their way. What we didn't do is turn that into a lead and then track that as pipeline and then follow up with the customer every single day to make sure that they go and sign that deal. We realized it's just like, you know what, if a customer is evaluating our products and going to buy, let's just make sure that if they have a question or run into a blockage, that we have people there to help them get past that blockage. And that was the original aspect of it. So it was much more of, I call it customer service versus sales. Mm. Since that time, we have expanded into, we call our enterprise advocate team. And then through some M&A, we call our senior enterprise advocate teams, where we do have what you would consider a more traditional sales organization, where they are getting leads or being assigned accounts within Atlassian, and they're tracking down opportunities through pipeline to completion. But these are largely established customers from Atlassian. These are customers that are already standardized on our products. They're looking to potentially have a much larger engagement with us, whether that's upgrading to our enterprise versions of our products or looking to buy the entire portfolio and put together more complex solutions. And the reality is when we get to those deals, it's like the ASPs are high enough where it makes sense to have dedicated account management against them. Yep. And for those that you have dedicated account management for, I assume success means a quota or it's tied to some revenue number. Is that true? And if so, what about the rest of the customer advocacy team? What does success mean? Yeah, it depends on the roles. So like I said, we have a good subset, like our customer advocates, it's very customer service focused, right? Did we respond to that customer quickly? Were they happy with the response? Yeah, okay, like SLAs around treating the customers well and getting them the answers. Very answer customer service focused. Yeah. As we go up the chain to these higher dollar things, yeah, absolutely, we have, uh, it's largely we have accounts and are we growing those accounts? as quickly as we can. More importantly, it's we have specific initiatives we have in flight, whether that's getting our customers to the cloud, getting our customers to expand into our IT operations tools, you name it. And we'll have specific targets around all those that go down to our enterprise advocates. And yes, they do have sales targets associated with those. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So again, as I was doing research, I saw a lot of very nice things written about Atlassian. Would it be fair to characterize it as one of the most efficient go-to-markets ever in enterprise software? Or how do you think about that? I'm hard-pressed to come up with one that's more efficient. <laughs> with that. So the, uh, there might be a few out there that run, but if you look at percentage of revenue gone to sales and marketing, and I think when you open this up, you said hey, Atlassian Pet spends 12 to 20% on customer acquisition. I mean, the reality is all of our sales and marketing expense is in that kind of mid-teens area. And the reality is the new customer acquisition part of that is only a fraction. And in fact, the majority of our apparatus, so to speak, of, of our go-to-market machine is much more focused on expanding customers once they've started with our products and then expanding them through adding users, going to premium additions, adding more products and so on. That's actually where the fun of the go-to-market model really shines. And we do that hyper-efficiently and we do that hyper-efficiently because we basically... In everything we do, it's about how do we serve thousands and thousands of customers? How do we look at those cohorts and how do we address them? And how do we automate those experiences first and foremost? And then how do we complement those automated experiences where, with people where it makes sense, largely where the ASPs are high enough, where human interaction makes sense? So walk me through a workflow. How does that happen? You have a core set of products that are the key tenants of what drives a customer to Atlassian. That is your top of funnel. So that might be Jira, Confluent, and Bitbucket. I'm not really sure. Maybe like three or four of those. Maybe it's just Jira. 
And then you have a suite of products or services built around that ecosystem of your core tenants or foundation that you then can expand, upsell, and then slowly start to bring in as a customer starts to become more engaged with Atlassian. How does that work? It works beautifully. Now, now the, so <laughs> let's use your software. So let's just say as of March, it used to be you would you come to our site, try Jira. Jira software is an agile project management tool for those of you who are not aware of Jira software. You get in a project, you start working it, and you had a seven-day trial. And at the end of seven days, you give us 10 bucks and you could have 10 users for $10 a month. And then that's where customers started with us. And it was 10 bucks a month for 10 users, no problem. It worked great. In March, we actually made the decision to remove that $10 first purchase. So now that user, basically, you can do 10 users for free across Jira, all of our products now. And it's only when you add your 11th user, you have to enter your credit card. And that all is into our view of make customers successful with our products, make it as easy as people for them to kind of self-serve that experience, try to eliminate as many steps as possible between that customer having a problem, which is I need a way to track work for my team, and a customer seeing value in our solution, which is largely setting up a project, submitting some tickets, inviting people of their team to go work on those tickets. And over since the time I've been here, we've shortened that from a consider a two or three day experience with many, many different windows to something that you can do in five minutes at no cost whatsoever. But now once we have that Jira software customer, they're actively using that product. Right now, how do we get them to add the 11th user? That's how they get them to a paid customer. Right now, that is a huge focus of our organization and it's a combination of three different teams. Our marketing team, who owns the website, email, content and collateral, can write blogs. Now, largely is, you think of someone who's might be part of a company with 500 people, but there's only seven people using Jira. It's largely, here are all the great things you can use Jira for <laughs> beyond just managing a project, or here are the best practices that we've seen, playbooks you can go run to get more value out of the experience. Combined with the marketing organization, we have our growth organization, which is constantly running different experiences, A-B tests on onboarding, user activation, new user journeys, new user training and enablement. So basically what we're constantly doing is changing that experience for new users to try and optimize that path of sign up to, I see value, I'm going to keep using this. And we're A-B testing like heck. We have all, you know, multiple tests going across multiple cohorts at all times. And then the last piece of that is our commerce teams who run all of the transactional components, which is, okay, I've added my 11th user. Great. How do we make it so that's easy as possible for the customer to enter their credit card, understand what they're paying for, understand how those transactions are going to work and allow them to manage that entire billing experience. Now that's three separate teams that all have to work in coordination, running a variety of different experiments, all analytics driven to get people to add that 11th user. And that's just the start of the customer journey today, but a ton of effort goes into automating that entire experience for our customers. Would this ever work? And this is a totally unfair question, but to your point, everybody wants to do this now. Everybody wants to create this product-led growth model because when it works, it's an incredibly efficient business. But if you don't have the product that naturally just works, i.e. Slack, i.e. Jira, whatever it might be, is it possible to replicate this without that killer first product? So first off, yes, product is all like, do we have a problem? And do you solve that problem in a unique way better than current ways that that problem is being solved today? 
And the answer is no, you always need an awesome product to start with. And, and Jira is absolutely it. It fit that criteria of what customers needed. But in addition to that, what allowed us in this, which Atlassian a bit unique, and it depends is, is the problem space it was solving for, is that Atlassian's tools can be used if you're part of, you know, Procter & Gamble, giant organization, 10 people in a small department can still use our products and get value out of them. You can't really say that about a CRM system or an HR information system, right? Like there are certain applications and problem spaces where you really kind of need a top-down decision. And the only way it works is if every single person in the company uses it, right? You wouldn't have multiple CRM systems and so on. And that's not where Atlassian, the problem space that we had is we could start with a team within a large enterprise. We didn't need the large enterprise to adopt all of our tools. And I think that's one dynamic that if I was a startup, I'd really have to understand is actually what we're doing is a system that only gets value if everyone's using it. That requires a completely different adoption model than something where actually it doesn't really matter the size of the company. As long as you know a set of users can get value in it, we can make this work. And Atlassian really focused on that latter part. Yeah. I've also heard independent of the transparent pricing, independent of all the things that enable what makes Atlassian a beautiful flywheel around documentation and APIs and the things that you discussed. I've heard things where customers might hit a threshold of spend, maybe it's 500K. And immediately the customer says, hey, we want an ELA, right? We want an all-you-can-eat license. And the answer is no. Am I right? Typically, most businesses, i.e. every business I've ever seen, says, sure, we'll do a three-year deal. It's an all-you-can-eat license capped at a certain seat or license amount. And you know, we'll do three years for the price of two, as an example. So we'll give you a million dollars for three years as opposed to 500K for one. That answer is legitimately no. And what, you redirect them back to the pricing page on the website? <laughs> yeah, so... What usually happens is Atlassian doesn't even show up on an enterprise IT budget or spend until roughly 100K. And then I think usually once we hit over 100K total spend, someone in procurement, it's rarely the business owner that's using mm -hmm. our tools, a procurement team gets spun up, right? And they're like, oh, wait, it's, this is big enough where they're incentivized to go get a discount and go get an MSA and go get negotiated terms and so on, because that's procurement's job, protect the business, save money, which is absolutely right. But the reality is by the time just simply do the pricing mechanics of our products is that by the time we get to that spend level with a customer, we're very entrenched in those customers. And there's no reason for us to give a discount at that point or to give contractual terms because we're like, we've never had to get to that growth point. More importantly, if that customer's coming in like, oh, you know, we're willing to spend five times as much with you next year, but you know, we need a discount off of that over the next two years. We know because one, we have thousands of customers. We know that actually the healthiest part for our business and our customers is pay for what you need, <laughs> right? So like, if you're going to get to that spend, fine, get over the period of year, like over a set of years, add your users and so on. You're always going to get the press pricing because we give every customer the same pricing. There's no incentive for us to try and bring in that larger deal because we know that that customer, we have faith and that's the part. We have faith supported by metrics that we know that customer is going to get to that higher dollar amount eventually anyways. The only place where that becomes a rub, and that's the part that empowers us to say no, that also allows us to keep us from doing anything that I'd say is awkward or one-off or more importantly, robbing from the future, yeah. right? If by saying no, we establish more consistent longer-term growth across the business. The only place where we will try to be more flexible is with customers that are largely in regulated or government entities that simply for some reason cannot accept our terms. 
And they could basically say, it's actually, you know what? Everyone loves your products, but the reality is this is too much for our risk for our business. We're going to shut this down and go with something that's way more expensive <laughs> and that no one wants to use simply because of the contractual terms. In those situations, we can engage in an ELA discussion. But in all those situations, there's a premium, right? We don't do it to discount the customer's expense. It's always a premium in those conversations because it's honestly more risk for us to live up to those terms. Do you guys ever negotiate T's and C's, contracts and MSAs, or do people pretty much click through and accept your EULA as is? For a very small, very small subset of established customers for that yeah. reason I just said. Yeah, okay. Right, so, but I tell you, it's it, with our 174,000 customers, it's a handful. God, people are listening to this right now, just banging their heads against the wall, jealous of how beautiful this thing is. Okay, another question for you. Do you have a quarterly number or an annual number? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We got, we got numbers on top of numbers. We are a metrics-driven business. Well, actually, I'll take that back. It's like my personal bonus is tied to my OKRs for my teams and so on. But yeah, absolutely. We have financial targets that we're trying to go hit. And I guess the reason I ask that is because the reason those numbers exist is to drive efficiency in a business, right? Drive predictability and linearity. And if you have a number then you do everything you can to pull in the revenue in order to hit that number because you're measured against that number and success means hitting that quota. And so I guess I'm just imagining the use case where you have a giant customer that says, we want to do a huge deal. And you know the sales rep brings it to Cameron. Cameron says, well, I'm 92% of the way to my number or the company number. We should bring in this deal to get across that finish line. That's the common thing. If you have a number, do you not have that kind of pressure to do so? Does the question make sense? The question makes perfect sense. Yeah, cool. it's the last week and you need to get the extra <laughs> seven mil in and like, let's give that customer 50% off the year four because largely robbed from the future to make your quarter this year. Now, I won't speak poorly to my previous companies that I learned a lot of, but it's like, that is a failing strategy. So first off, we don't give discounts. So. The reality is what it comes down to is what are the tools I have available as a company to do that last minute deal? And the reality is we don't. We don't do discounts last minute. We don't do contractual terms last minute. There's no certain thing. And we tell the customers up front on that. Like if you're going to wait till the last hour of the quarter to get this deal in and hope that we cave and like we're not like that's simply just not how we operate. And the reality is which when we hire new salespeople in the business, they kind of like it blows their heads. It's like, well, how do I create a compelling event? And like, you don't need a compelling event. If the product works for them, answer all their questions, guide them through. You don't have to wait till the last minute and negotiate. They're going to get the same price on April 1st that they did on March 31st. And once you establish with the customers, there's no reason to bring everything to the end. The other side of that is simply due to the size of our customer base. No single customer represents more than 1% of our revenue. Thus, no single transaction would ever get, you know, the reality is that 8% gap that we'd have at the end of the quarter, which has never happened, by the way, would never be made up through a single customer transaction. We have way too diverse of a customer base. Was it always that way? Like even seven years ago? More so. No kidding. Seven years ago, you got to realize the most expensive products we had were $24,000. That was an unlimited license of Jira when I started Atlassian. Actually, it was 8000 and we just raised the price to 24000 So even our largest customers, the largest banks in the world, were paying us twenty four k for an unlimited license, whereas our entry-level customers were paying us 1000 So the delta seven or eight years ago between largest customer and smallest customer was actually smaller than it is today. 
Now big customers can pay us millions simply because we have a pricing model to do that. But yeah, uh, years ago, it was much more of a lower ASP, higher volume. Is there a difference in the way that companies like to procure software given where they are geographically? And so what I mean by that is, does this model work better for Japan than it does USA? Does it work horribly in Australia, but excellent in Germany? Because the model is so upside down that people are generally conditioned to buy in a certain way, wherever they are. And maybe that's through different vehicles, like a channel, maybe not. But is it any different anywhere else? Does that make sense? Sounds like my regional teams have been speaking with you. So first off, anytime you hire teams or talk to a customer in any individual market, and I know this saying as someone from California, from North America, the first thing you always hear is, well, it's different here. Right. You don't understand Cameron, right? Like it's the American ego to think that everyone will buy this way. And the reality is they're absolutely right. It is different. Every market, every buyer, and I'll go down every company does things differently. So I wouldn't say that like, but you know, we can do this in North America, but it's completely different in Italy because in North America, it's way different if you're selling into government, if selling in financial services or selling into tech, right? So the reality is for geography is a perfect example. How do we support the needs of customers in markets where we have no presence, have no language support, have no currency support and so on? And this is where Lassian's channel really comes in. So another thing that we did very early on is we established our solution partners network of which we have hundreds worldwide and they do a variety of things for us. But on the commercial side of things is that they are our feet on the street in markets that Atlassian that have where people require someone to come into the office and talk to them before they're going to do business that need on-site help and support of deployment of our products. And of course, to do transaction and local currencies and so on. And we have a massive network of partners that's critical to our go-to-market machine to support all of those needs. This is going to sound maybe stupid, but everyone talks about doing things differently. Everyone wants to do things differently. People talk a lot about the top-down enterprise motion has changed, product-led, bottoms-up, empowering the developer, developer advocacy, all of these different phrases and, and things that seem to be cache. But the reality of it is there is a safe and predictable way of doing things that has been tried and true to build a large business. In this time, not only are you guys doing one or two things different, literally every single thing that you say is just upside down from what is the norm? Has there ever been insecurity or kind of a moment where you all look at each other like, oh, this is pretty risky. Like, are we crazy here? Like, is this crazy? Was there ever moments of, okay, we're going to start a second product. Like we just launched our first one two years ago. Those decisions are so bold and in retrospect seem so easy because they worked so well. But the reality of it is I can't imagine at the time it felt that easy. Tell me if I'm wrong. Yeah. We have plenty of failures too. You know, not everything's been knocking out of the park. We've plenty of failures to learn from. The reality is our core business has stayed strong. We have a diverse set of product lines, right? So we have a variety of product lines that if one takes off, there are other things to make up for, or one fails, like there's different ways. But as far as we come down to the crazy big decision making, part of this is that our two CEOs being from Australia, not being from the valley. By the way, two CEOs, co-CEOs. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Of it's course, a, of course. And they're always 100% aligned. They never, ever, you know, like it's just the, you know, like it's the nature of it. It's actually, they're almost yin and yang is that 
they work very well off one show. You have like one who will come up with a crazy big idea of, you know, what's the possible. And then the other can be the counter argument. How do we make the probable? And it's that balancing act that actually allows us to make really, really big decisions with confidence. And then on top of that is we are such a metrics driven tests, learn agile iteration type of company is that rarely do we just pull the big levers and make those big decisions. They've been debated and tested on cohorts of customers over multiple years or over multiple months at least. This decision to go to free. I can tell you right now, Jira, when you signed that seven-day trial, we knew that X percent were going to convert to a paying customer after that seven days. And that X percent was exactly the same. You know, it was within a standard deviation of like 0.1%. It was just this very part. It was a mature part of our business that we understood. It was like, this is how landing the choice to go to free, which is let's eliminate that conversion event that was well known, could be things. So that's, that's a crazy idea. It's a big decision. But the reality is we ran probably a set of different experiments and tests with that thing for over a period of 14 months. We had done small subsets of customers, then large subsets of customers. We did minor launches of free before we even did the big launch of free. So by the time it feels like Atlassian made this huge decision, we just became more and more confident in that end result over a period of time. Were you there when it was private and public? When did the company go public? We went public in 2015, December 2015. Okay. Is that right? Is December okay. 2015 or 20... Okay. Yeah. So you were there. Yeah, I was there. Well, you were there before and after. You're there yeah. about the same amount of time before and after at this point. I guess the question that I have is, did the founders want to stay private for as long as possible? And the reason I ask that is because, well, obviously companies want to stay private for as long as possible, but having a risk appetite like Atlassian does, I can't imagine lends itself well to having public shareholders and accountability outside of co-CEOs. Was there debate internally or was there just kind of like a reluctance to even go public, mainly because of the way that you guys look at risk before and after? No, I think there was always a debt. Like, once again, back to the, how the founders thought is we want to be a hundred year company. We want to be a company with dozens, if not hundreds of products. And we want to empower every single team in the world to be more productive and work better together. If that's the final destination for your company, you, you have to go public. It's, it's impossible to do that as a private company or highly unlikely. So there was always that destination. When I came on, it was largely establishing the executive team, establishing the board, doing all the proper motions to, to go publicly and also did time to make sure that we were a, what I'd say is a very operationally mature organization when we did go public, right? And since we were always a profitable business, we had always had high free cash flow. We weren't always forced to go raise capital just because it's the way to keep the business running is that we did it to invest in and accelerate our business more through M&A or massive investments in R&D. So no, there was never an aversion to going public. We just made sure we crossed all of our T's and dotted our I's before we did. Okay. So you took some money from Excel and from T. Rowe Price, 60 million from Excel, 150 million from T. Rowe Price. But in both cases, it was actually to provide liquidity to your employees, not to fund the operations. So typically one of the primary growth levers for a high growth SaaS company is money, venture money. You haven't had to do that. And is the reason because from the get-go, you were making money and because of the efficiency in your model, you just never had to? Yep. That's why I just keep it like, will there ever be another Atlassian? You got to realize how patient those two guys were. They founded in 2002. They took money in 2010 
that right from Excel? 2009, like seven or eight years before they even took money, but that was purely for liquidity. So 13 years to go public. That's a long time. And also, if you look at our growth rates every single year, we rarely got over a 50% growth rate. We never had the 100% triple digit ones, maybe very early on. We went from like one to two million, but but we did near you know high 40s or 50s for multiple years on end, right? So we were always this kind of steady growth, always profitable business. Don't rob from the future to accelerate growth now. It's all about continuing to build a long, long path for high growth over a long period of time. So yeah, we never had to raise venture capital to feed the business. But after 13 years, like the tender offer we did with T. Rowe Price, you know, there's a lot of employees that have been there for a decade and they deserve some sort of liquidity. Now that's, that's so funny. It's like, you know, I took some money off the table when T. Rowe Price came in and of things I regret in my life, selling those <laughs> shares. <laughs> I was like, that was it. Yeah. <laughs> I bet. I bet. You mentioned earlier failures. I have a tendency to just talk about, again, we're very privileged on this show to have incredible leaders with companies that have grown historically. And so we just tend to focus on what was great. Failures. I'd love to hear what have you failed in or the company? And I'm going to leave this open-ended so it's whatever you feel comfortable with and all the different roles that you've been in. What just, you know, you did something and you're like, oh man, that was bad. Whether it was with people, with strategy, with product, whatever it might be. I'd give two. So the one that's public knowledge across the board, and it's actually, you know, we turned it from a failure into a massive success was our product hip check, where we had an incredible messaging application before Slack was even existed. Actually, Alaskan acquired this small little messaging company called HipChat that had a decent brand around it, good organic adoption within the developer customer base, the developer user base kind of had good word of mouth and was seeing what I'd say is steady, strong growth numbers after we acquired them. It was just this like, okay, yeah, this is a interesting part of our business. It was growing pretty rapidly and so on. But you got to think this is 2013, 2014. Slack wasn't even didn't exist yet, but we were a multi-product portfolio company. And we were continuing also to invest in Jira. And we were coming out with Jira Service Desk at the time, which is a super popular product now. We were talking about re-architecting our cloud platform so that we could be accelerated SaaS part of our business. We had all these competing initiatives with each other. And we saw HipChat and said, okay, HipChat, it's going well. That's great. We believe it's getting enough carrying feeding, but we don't need to double down or triple down on it. Now, looking back, Slack came up, you know, out of nowhere, all of a sudden, just went, like, you know, and we just saw it, and everyone remembers like the massive organic adoption of Slack that we would see in the market, same exact market HipChat was facing in. And then we decided actually, oh, wait a minute, this is a massive market. Let's pull the brake on other things, double down our investments on HipChat and try to accelerate it overnight with massive marketing spend, massive engineering investment. We tried to basically, instead of what I say is the Alaskan way of doing things, which is organic investment year over year, test and learn, test and learn, test and learn and grow. We simply said, let's go big. And we dumped a huge amount of resources into HipChat overnight. And the challenge with that is we ended up driving a massive amount of people into HipChat onto our products. And actually we had stability problems. We had quality problems. We had all sorts of challenges onboarding users, right? Because we didn't iterate and learn for that type of volume. We drove a ton of volume in, which is what we tried to do, but we simply couldn't provide the experience those customers demanded, which only led to those customers leaving HipChat and joining Slack, which was a massive learning for all of us. This, you know, is that, oh, we, it was such our, our market to have. 
granted, that all resulted into this conversation of, as a multi-product company, well, do we keep doing this battle? Do we keep slogging it out? Or are we better off as friends <laughs> with Slack? And we actually ended up, once again, I think is one of the most brilliant things we've done, which is actually exited out of the messaging market, sold our hip chat, and we had another product called Stride Business to Slack, became partners with Slack, became investors in Slack as well. And that has paid massive dividends as Slack has become successful. But also this partnership between our two companies has only driven both of our funnels more aggressively, right? So it's brought in more Jira customers and Confluence customers, and we brought more Slack customers. So it was one of those things where we turned a, what we considered a, a pretty big failure at the time into one of the bigger successes of our company. And assumingly, one of the big enablers of growth for Atlassian is trust. And what I mean by that is that if they're using Jira and they like that product, they trust Atlassian as a company to deliver on the quality that they promise that customers demand. And I assume one of the big things was not necessarily that you may have lost the battle per se, but maybe the war around trust was, man, we may have tarnished at the time, obviously you're fine now, but tarnished the trust with our customers around the ecosystem of products within Atlassian by not delivering on just one promise that we had with HipChat when we tried to onboard them in the not Atlassian way. Yeah, the trust piece is interesting. So there's two pieces on that one. One is one of our key values, the company is open company, no bullshit. And that comes down to open and transparent pricing, openness with customers on where we're going. And, and more importantly, you know, not making promises to customers about where this product's going to go and what it's going to do it's for them to make a decision. Like the reality is there's the product. Here's the price. If you like it, you can buy it, but we're not going to try and sell you beyond what it actually is, which is this refreshing thing in a, in a sales engagement where, yeah, customers might want all the different widgets and gadgets and so on, but we never promise that stuff. It's like, that's the product. We're always innovating. We're always heading this direction but you customer are making the choice to use our products or not. And that puts a lot of that decision-making and empowerment on the customer. And the reality is that's one of the best parts. What I love talking to customers is, you know, they chose to become an Atlassian customer. They choose to use our products. And then we have a bunch of people that have built what I consider their careers off of Atlassian. They're like, you know, I've, I brought Jerry into my company and it's fundamentally changed my career and made the success I am. That is the most invaluable piece of our business. And I could talk for ages about those type of people. But it's beyond trust at that point. They're part of the family is how I call them. And my best example of this possible is like, I'll come in and when I was running R&D, customer escalation calls. And most people would be like, customer escalation calls are the worst thing ever, right? It's when you're basically going to go get chewed out by a customer. They were actually my favorite part of a, the job because I'd say nine times out of 10 on a customer escalation call, I'd get on a video... And the person who's about to go chew me out because the product failed or what have you is wearing an Atlassian t-shirt and a, like a Jira hat. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> you know, like the only reason why this individual is so angry is because they care so much because so much of their success and their role is tied to our products. And the reality is, and if we failed them, like that's on us to basically stand up and solve that customer's issues. And we do that again and again and again. And those customers just continue to love us for it. And that's that's the actually the most exciting part about this job. That's a cool perspective. Sorry, there was another failure. Did you want to share that one or <laughs> I pushed against my my manager at the time who was the former president of Alaskan who's moved on, where I said, you know what, our big customers don't want to just buy individual products from us anymore. 
right? Everything was like, you'd come in, these quotes would have like, you know, 87 things on them, right? And I said, you know, we have to package our products into a suite of some sort. We have to give a discount. We have to, I was so adamant about this. You know, we have to basically package our products, give a discount on top of that. It'll accelerate growth in the long run versus selling a bunch of individual products. And I championed that against my manager's wills. He's like, listen, you own it. That's fine. You put it, this is yours. And we got a bunch of customers to buy it. And then we went in and we did some analysis on all of it. And we basically tried to compare the trends of those customers' growths as they bought individual products versus buying the suite with the discount. Their growth rates year over year against their similar like customers who didn't buy the suite. And as we kept on looking back at this analysis, the customers that didn't buy the suite that just kept buying products a la carte, their growth rates always were higher than the people that bought into the suite which basically came down to is congratulations, Cam, you got people to buy more products from us up front, but they didn't use all of them that were in the box and they ended up paying us less over a period of time, right? Which Mm -hmm. is tell me how that's more value for either us or the customer. They're not using all the products that they bought from us. And Atlassian is making less money than we would have if we just hadn't done anything. And that's a tough one to swallow. And then you have to kind of unwind all that with the customers. And that was one of my less happy times. Interesting. Okay, I have one more question and I, I want to be respectful of your time to wrap up here. The other thing that I noticed in doing some research that, again, surprised me is that there is a ethos around Silicon Valley, and I should just be specific tech companies because Atlassian is not really a Silicon Valley company, around building products from within. So what I mean by that is that I figured for sure Atlassian is a product-led growth company. They created Jira, all these things. I'm sure they have this thing around just building everything internally. And as I looked, I realized that's not the case at all. In fact, you did M&A and bought a majority of the companies. Maybe a majority is not a fair characterization, but a lot of the companies that are now products, I think including HipChat, from fledgling startups that you then incubated within Atlassian. Maybe if you could just talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, we bought two this year. We bought Health and we bought Mindville. <laughs> the, uh, this the not invented mentality, right? That it's like, we have the superior engineering platform and only, only we know how to build software products. Once again, if you look to our founders, like that is crazy talk. There's so much cool innovation and technology out there that Atlassian can never even think of. Like, it's just the nature of it. Why wouldn't we embrace that? And then on top of our organic innovation, we do in-house and we have a variety of programs and frameworks to make sure that stays healthy, whether it's our ship it programs or our new product frameworks, you name it. Part of the, our strength financially as a business, as part of our free or cash flow growth and so on, allows us to be quite acquisitive and allows us to have built a muscle where we know how to acquire technology and not completely break it you know, once you bring it into the house. And that goes back to our originals that last one was always a multi-product company. We know how to have more SKUs and we're also believing a lot of agile practices, which is we know how to keep teams somewhat autonomous and move fast while you know leveraging the core things that make Atlassian Atlassian. So no, we're definitely not anti-M&A, we're actually very for it, and we, but we also balance that with our own organic innovation. And you were the only guy to run M&A that never did an M&A deal. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I had lots of wonderful lunches with venture capital firms. <laughs> we can talk about corp dev. That is a weird job. But uh, we have an incredible head of corporate development in now at our business. And it's something that, honestly, I think is one of the most fun 
parts of the job. Yeah. It's like M&A can fundamentally accelerate or change your strategy as a business kind of overnight. And it's, it's really interesting. Okay. So I said one last question, but I have one more. And you're a really humble guy, so you're going to have a hard time answering this. What do you think are one or two of the characteristics that you have that have made you successful in such a diversity of tasks that they've put you up to? Mm. <laughs> yeah. The first off, and I kind of got this from my previous boss, I didn't say no to anything. And maybe that's just blind confidence, unearned confidence. But the reality is I was asked to do all these jobs. I never applied to all of them. Like I, someone larger than my previous employer saw something in me that said, hey, Cameron can take this on. And, and in general, I said, yeah, you know, I'm going to go learn this just like everything else. So the first thing is I, I didn't have the inherent fear of, of oh, am I going to be okay for this? Just I always ran at it kind of blindly and hoped that the people on my teams would teach me how to be a good leader. The second one and I say this at Alassian specifically, and maybe every company's a little like this, is the having the proper balance of directness, get shit done. We're not here to just talk. Let's get this stuff done. Almost an asshole. Just that very line of like, come on, like we need to get this done, get it done, get it done, get the stuff out the door while still being someone that people want to work with. Right. And I'm sure there's people at Alassian that don't want to work with me. And that's fine. <laughs> 5,000 people. I'm sure someone out there doesn't. But I've always tried to have that balance of pushing the teams and pushing them hard, but not being someone that, you know, those people you just, you're about to have a meeting with them and you're like, I really don't want to go to this meeting. That's the problem. Like, I want someone that people want to come in and have a meeting with me and not fear it. And that's a delicate balancing act that some people nail and some people have a hard time with. Well, Whatever you're doing, it's working for you, man. Congratulations on all the success. Promise me when we get to 88 billion, we can do another episode and we can talk about how you still don't have a sales team. Fair? It's the, I will, I'm happy to talk about it last in at any time, or whatever the markets may do. Awesome. Okay. What does the word grit mean to you and how do you or your teams apply it? Grit is knowing you have this impossible task ahead of you you know, this giant mountain to climb, not really knowing how you're going to get over this task or through this task, but just going at it because you've had through horrible tasks before and you always get through it no matter what. And just having that kind of confidence in yourself and your teams that regardless of what's in front of you, you're going to get through it every single time. That's great. If someone wants to get a hold of you, Maybe it's someone listening that's a sales leader, marketing, whatever it might be. What's the best way to get a hold of you? LinkedIn is absolutely the best, Cameron Deach. Or you can track me down at Atlassian at cdeach at atlassian.com. If you really want to email me, you can go figure out how to spell cdeach at atlassian.com. Thank you, man. I appreciate your time. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Jubin. Thank you, folks, for tuning in to learn from our amazing guest and for indulging me as the rambling host. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you'd like to get in touch or keep up with the pod, please follow me on Twitter at Jubin Mir or shoot us an email, gtmg at kleinerperkins.com. If you liked what you heard and want to hear more, please support the show by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. Thank you, and I will see you next time.